Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Zika Way, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Zika Way. Today is uh, Sunday, uh, January the 29th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal. Later on in our program, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on a developing situation in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, where five police officers have been charged in the murder of an African-American motorist. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has told the Sudanese military leadership that the country should resolve its internal problems independent of Western influence. Freetown Sierra Leone Mayor Yvonne Aki Sawyer has faced obstacles in reform efforts related to assistance to the impoverished while improving the overall environment. And there have been clashes reported in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo despite a recent peace agreement involving regional states. In the second hour, we listened to a joint statement between South Africa and Russia on the current domestic and international situations. Later, uh, we listened to a briefing from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, on the public health status of various African states. Finally, we reviewed the address by South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, delivered at the African National Congress National Executive Committee, Lakotla, gathering. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, so stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude with the Orchestra Makasi with Moss Fanfan and Remy Ongala. Let's listen in. <laughs> Thank you. 
Because she got in a little 
And uh, in news uh, from the African continent, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed uh, said on Thursday uh, during his visit, uh, a one-day working visit to the capital of the Republic of Sudan in Khartoum, during the trip he advised Sudanese political forces to solve problems without external influence. The visit to the Sudanese capital was the first for the Ethiopian leader since border clashes between the two countries. I am pleased to come back again and be among the wise and vibrant people of Sudan. My appreciation to General Abdel Fattah El-Burhan for the warm welcome, Abi said in a tweet after his arrival in Khartoum. Ethiopia continues to stand in solidarity with Sudan in their current self-led political process. He emphasized, after a welcome at the Khartoum airport, Al-Bahan and Ahmed held a meeting to discuss bilateral relations. A joint communique uh, was released at the end of the visit. It said that the talks included the giant dam and the border dispute. The leaders reaffirmed the need to resolve it through established mechanisms. The communique stressed the purpose of the one-day visit was to show solidarity and support for the government and people of Sudan as they exert efforts to reach an intra-Sudanese consensus to establish a smooth transitional period. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In West Africa, uh, in the capital of Freetown in Sierra Leone, when Ivan Aki Sawyer uh, was elected mayor of Sierra Leone's capital, Freetown, uh, some five years ago, many saw the bright and brazen British-educated figure as a rising political star. Pitching environmental initiatives in the climate-vulnerable West African country, she appointed Africa's first chief heat officer and vowed to tackle the city's trash mountain and build a cable car system to boost mobility. But as I.K. Sawyer's first term draws to an end, much of her agenda has been thwarted by rows and legal battles. Her problems have showcased some of the political tensions in this useful democracy, which emerged uh, in 2002 from a decade-long civil war and where elections are due uh, this coming June. I.K. Sawyer Critics uh, say she has cut corners and wasted taxpayers' money pandering to the poor. She accuses the government of blocking her as a member of the opposition All People's Congress, APC Party. The current president is Julius Madao Bio, who narrowly won elections in 2018 as champion of the Sierra Leone People's Party. My biggest shock has been to see programs, interventions, initiatives held back because of a perception that I am a political opponent as opposed to collaborator in development. I.K. Sawyer, 55, told the international press from the newly built skyscraper where she works, a donation from the South Korean government uh, built uh, the structure. A dual British national who trained as a chartered accountant and cut her teeth in London's private sector, I.K. Sawyer returned to Sierra Leone uh, some nine years ago in 2014 to help fight Ebola. She worked for which uh, she was awarded the Order of the British Empire. She says she has no plans to leave Sierra Leone, although she has lived apart from her husband and now adult children for eight years. As mayor, Aki Sawyer was secured, has secured large sums of external funding, including a $1 million Bloomberg Philanthropies Award. And uh, finally, uh, in regard uh, to uh, today's uh, news, 
clashes taking place between Rwandan soldiers and Democratic Republic of Congo police on a small island in Lake Kivu. This sparked panic, giving ongoing tensions between Kigali and Kinshasa. Congolese sources reported this earlier today. Police station on Ibanja Island in eastern DRC on the south side of the lake, which the neighbor's borders bisect, challenged three boats carrying armed Rwandan troops as they approached their base uh, yesterday. A DRC Navy source based in the region said on condition of anonymity. According to the source, a DRC policeman went to challenge the soldiers as to why they were on the Congolese side of the border. After a discussion, voices were raised and there were exchanges of gunfire, sparking panic among locals in earshots of Shivumbu village. Several families fled the island and took refuge just across the water at Birava. Local civil society representative Jackson Kalimba said, Naval sources uh, said the Rwandan troops returned to base without disembarking on the island. And Ashimede Kaharibwa, DRC local assistant administrator, said the situation was now under control on Sunday. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding uh, this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, some 25 years ago. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, all you need to do is go uh, to our website that, uh, that is at the Pan-African Radio Network, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. I'd rather be lonely
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the voice of Candy Staten, and I'm just a prisoner. And uh, yes, in our previous program, uh, we uh, played an excerpt of the joint press conference between uh, Russian Federation Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and his uh, South African com- uh, counterpart, uh, Dr. Naledi Pandor. Uh, due to technical difficulties, we only heard a small brief section uh, of uh, this uh, important and historic uh, joint briefing. Uh, today, uh, we're going to uh, go back and listen uh, to this briefing uh, in uh, more of its entirety. Uh, here we have the voices of Russian Federation Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. The first voice you'll hear is uh, South African Foreign Minister Dr. Naledi Pandor. Let's listen in. To record the progress that uh, was evident on a range of issues relating to the relationship between South Africa and the Russian Federation. We as South Africa attach great importance to fostering and deepening our partnership through strengthening our structured bilateral mechanisms. And so it is in this regard that I look forward to co-hosting the 17th ITEC session during the first quarter of this year. I look forward as well to the implementation of our commitments as discussed in our meeting and to us having a continued closer working relationship. I must say, when we first met and I heard that growl, I didn't think we would become friends, but I believe we are friends now. Our goal is to work unrelentingly toward the upliftment of our respective nations and to do so through the instruments of foreign policy that we have at our disposal. I believe our shared goal is to witness a significant and greater increase in economic social, cultural, people-to-people, and scientific interactions between our countries. We've had the opportunity to review the status of some of the currently outstanding agreements and have reiterated our commitments in areas where some work remains to be done. I must thank you most sincerely for the additional scholarships that you announced that would be made available to young South African uh, undergraduate students. I believe most importantly we should encourage our colleagues in other departments to be responsive to the issues that we have identified as important for advancing our bilateral cooperation. I look forward to welcoming you and your delegation back to South Africa in the not too distant future for our BRICS meetings and I wish you continued good health and a safe return home and a longer stay in South Africa next time you visit. I now, Minister, hand back to you and thank you for this most wonderful meeting. Thank you very much. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, at the outset, let me sincerely thank once again our South African friends, personally, South African President Ramaphosa and uh, Minister of International Relations and uh, International Cooperation, Nala Panda, for the hospitality extended to us. 
We have stated a progressive development of Russian-South African relations based on a solid historical foundation. We have welcomed the consolidation of contacts between different ministries and agencies, the expression of uh, interparliamentary and interparty exchanges, in particular, I'm talking about uh, our uh, party or Russia, the United Russia and uh, the African National Congress. We have agreed to intensify our work in a whole range of areas in order to uncover fully the broad potential of our ties, especially in the area of economics. We have decided to intensify the preparation for the 17th regular mixed uh, intergovernmental committee on trade and economic cooperation. Mada Panda is its co-chair on the part of South Africa on the uh, our part is the Minister of Natural Resources and Ecology, Mr. Kozlov. Special attention at this meeting will be paid to the cooperation in energy, science, and technical areas, as well as to the issues of transport and other kinds of infrastructure, the cooperation in the peace exploration of outer space. We have paid today special attention to the need to broaden and develop humanitarian ties there is a demand for that in our countries. Our peoples are very interested in uh, developing contacts. We have agreed to increase uh, the number of uh, scholarships provided to our South African colleagues in the framework of the federal budget of Russia. We've talked a lot about relevant international issues. Our countries are subsequent advocates of a more fair, inclusive, democratic, and polycentric architecture of the world order, which would be based on the main principles of the UN Charter, the respect for the sovereign equality of all the states. And we are obviously speaking in favor for the increasing role of uh, South African Union uh, on all platforms, including in the context of the discussion regarding the reforming of the Security Council. We have uh, discussed our partnership and the UN in its different, different commissions and structures in G20, in the OPCW, in the framework of the Kimberley process. As for G20, we are in favor of the interests of African countries to be represented in this structure as the African Union, in addition to uh, the current members. We have discussed in details our cooperation and the framework of BRICS. We all agree that, that this structure is an example of a truly multilateral and multipolar diplomacy based on a search for a balance of interests. We share the priorities of South African uh, chairmanship that started on the 1st of uh, January and will take place under the MOTA partnership for rapid growth, sustainable development, and inclusive multipolarity. I would like to wish our colleagues success in the implementation of the outlined plans, and of course, we will facilitate their putting into practice. We have exchanged notes regarding the settlement of the existing conflicts on the African continent, including in the Great Lakes region, in the Central African Republic, and South Sudan, in Mali, 
in the northern part of Mozambique, we have the same opinion. We believe that uh, the Africans ought to define for themselves the solutions to these problems on the continent. And we highlight the active role of uh, South Africa and its president uh, in a whole number of crisis situations. And the international community is to support the ways of settlement chosen by African countries themselves including in the framework of the African Union and different sub-regional organizations, Russia will be actively helping to normalize the situation in hot of tension through the consolidation of peacekeeping potential of African countries. We are ready to train them. In our country, we provide equipment to the relevant missions of the African Union and other organizations. We are interested in consolidating our dialogue regarding the development of the partnership between Russia and the African Union, I've already mentioned that, and with other leading sub-regional organizations, including with those where South Africa is an active member. We've also discussed the preparation for the second summit Russia-Africa that will take place at the end of July this year in St. Petersburg. We assume that it's results will be based on the work we have already done after the first summit uh, in autumn 2019 in Sochi and will enable our ties to reach new horizons. We hear a big interest on behalf of our African friends to, uh, in making this event successful. Upon the request of my colleagues, we have discussed in detail the course of the special military operation in Ukraine, which is aimed at saving civilians and preventing the creation of direct threats to the Russian security near our border. And that is something that the U.S. and the NATO allies have been doing for years. We appreciate the independent, well-balanced, and considered approach by our South African friends. In general, I believe the talks have been very fruitful, and they have confirmed that in our relations there are good perspectives, and I'm sure that the implementation of the agreement that we have reached today will give a new impetus to the mutually beneficial cooperation between our countries in the whole range of areas. Thank you for the attention. Thank you very much, Excellent. Um, we will now take questions from Thank you so much, Sofimkwena from the SABC, uh, South African Broadcasting Corporation. My question is directed to both Minister Pando and uh, Minister Lavrov. The world is looking forward to hear good news in terms of the end to this current conflict or war in Ukraine. Earlier on, Minister Lavrov pointed out that uh, Russia is willing to engage. Uh, are we likely to see the peace process very soon? And if so, in terms of mediation, who will be better placed to assist these two countries to come to the negotiating table? and? to stop the war in Ukraine 
so that we don't continue to experience or see the loss of lives from both sides. And the last question is in relation to the military exercise in the Indian Ocean next month by both China and Russia and hosted by South Africa. There has been a mixed reaction to that uh, engagement next month with people, some uh, criticizing the move, Minister Pando, uh, to allow that kind of uh, uh, exercise in the midst of uh, all the tension in Ukraine or the war in Ukraine. From your perspective, what is South Africa's reaction? And also to Minister Lavrov, what is your reaction to the criticism that the timing is not correct? As they say at different conferences, thank you for your statements. But as for the first part of the question that you have uh, explained in details, we have already spoken on numerous occasions in public. We have expressed our assessments and I'm convinced that the mass media in the whole world that are interested in what is happening around Ukraine have uh, called acknowledged with our comments made by the President of Russia and by myself. As soon as the Ukrainian side at the beginning of March proposed to start talks, agreed. We agreed there were three rounds in Belarus. There were several rounds uh, online, and then there was a meeting in Istanbul at the end of March. It took place upon the invitation of our Turkish colleagues, and Istanbul, the Ukrainian delegation, came up with the draft project with the principles of the settlement that we supported and uh, on the basis of the document and in accordance with its principles, we came up with the trust treaty correct from the judicial point of view, and at that moment, the Ukrainian side got signals from Washington, London, Brussels, I don't know from where, according to which it was too early for the Ukrainians to start talking with Russia. They said that if Russian had agreed to have talks, it means that it meant that they were weak and that they needed to continue to put pressure on them. Then Mr. Burrell said that Ukraine was to win on the battlefield. I don't recall that any of those journalists who are interested in the prospects of peaceful agreement asking Burrell why he talked about a military solution, not about the conflict. And I don't recall any of our Western colleagues, including Stoltenberg, uh, Mr. Burrell, and the representative of the Ukraine, uh, of the American administration, saying that it was time to 
find a solution. They saw that it was too early to find an agreement, and they needed to gain more, to become more powerful, and to achieve Russia's defeat, because they want us to come back to the borders of 1991. I know that you've got acquainted with the statements. As for uh, the one who can become uh, the mediator, I can say that last year Mr. Zelensky signed a decree, a legal binding document that prohibited any Ukrainian official to have talks with the Russian side. It is just prohibited. So you can ask anyone, any mediator, to clarify how the Ukrainian side sees the further development of the situation. As uh, the President said, we do not refuse negotiations. Those who refuse, and I will outline them later, are to understand that the longer they refuse, the more difficult it will be to find a solution. That is that were my remarks regarding the first part of the question as for the military exercises. I think there is nothing to comment on. There are three sovereign countries. They don't violate any norms of international law. They will conduct exercises. I don't understand how they can provoke a big reaction, maybe only with our American colleagues, because they believe that only they can have exercises all over the world, and not only on their more than 200 military bases all over the world, but at any place. Now they are actively involved in uh, naval exercises in the framework of their Indo-Pacific strategies, uh, near China, in the Chinese Sea, in the Taiwan Strait, and it doesn't provoke any mixed reaction. At least I haven't heard mass media asking questions about the U.S. doing something dozens of miles away from its coastline. Our exercises are transparent. We, together with our South African and Chinese partners, have provided all the relevant information. It is available. Of course, uh, there can be mixed reaction that you have mentioned. Uh, the White House representatives uh, once were asked at a briefing several years ago about uh, Washington's attitude to Russia's representative to Nicaragua, and they gave a direct answer. They said that the relations between Russia and Nicaragua provoked a concern with them. That was the reaction. So there are those who try to monopolize international relations and who say openly that there can be no competitors of the U.S. and Russia is proclaimed to be the main threat and Chinese is a long-term challenge that they need to overcome. 
That is a mentality. That is the mentality that falls out of the international norms framework. We know that the U.S. and their satellites from Europe are promoting um, rule-based order conception, and no one of our Western colleagues has ever explained to me what rules they are despite my numerous requests. There are no such rules. That's just what Washington decides that is supported by London and Brussels. It's a problem. It's a flagrant violation of the main principles of the UN Charter on the sovereign equality of all states, and we don't want to provoke any scandals or confrontation. We just want every country to be able to have their own rights in the international system as provided by the UN Charter. On such basis, not on the basis of dictatorship and imposing decisions, but on the basis of consensus, mutual equality, a search for a balance, we are developing our cooperation, including the framework of BRICS. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Sophie, for those questions. Uh, well, uh, indeed, we have uh, discussed the matter of uh, the Ukraine-Russia conflict. We've got a very extensive briefing uh, from uh, our colleague, Minister Lavrov. And we reiterated, as I've done publicly, South Africa's desire that there be a diplomatic solution and that negotiations should be something all of us work toward, uh, particularly in the context of the United Nations, which is the global institution that we all accept as the premier multilateral institution. We reiterated that belief and we continue to hold uh, uh, to it. As to who will mediate, again, that will be a decision uh, that I think the globe, global community and leadership must take uh, together. The first is to decide to seek peace, which is what South Africa desires, and then other matters will ensue uh, from there. With respect to the military uh, exercise, which has uh, had the commentary you referred to, you will recall my remarks a few months ago where I indicated that one of the things we as Africans need to resist is this impulse of wanting to direct a double standard form of international conduct toward us, that what I do is okay for me, but you cannot do it because you are a developing country or you are Africa. That is an abuse of international practice. All countries conduct military exercises with friends worldwide. So there should be no compulsion on any country that it should conduct them with any other partner. It's part of a natural course of relations between countries. So I think uh, we need to explain this to the public. Maybe as the, uh, the broadcaster, you could develop a list of the uh, military exercises that there have been just in the last year, up to the ones planned by China, Russia, and South Africa, and alert our community to the fact that this is just a natural set of exercises that occurs between countries that have such uh, relationships. And we should not deny any country 
the right to participate in such. Да, большое спасибо. Мой вопрос и вам, Сергей Викторович, и госпожи Бандер. Russia TV. It's the question about economics and how is the economic relationship in the Philippines-Russia-Russia-Russia-Russia-Russia-Russia-Russia-Russia-Russia-Russia-Russia-Russia-Russia-Russia-Russia-Russia-Russia-Russia-Russia-Russia-Russia-Russia-Russia-Russia
Thank you very much. I think my colleague yeah, has really answered the question. I just wanted to stress that South Africa and Russia have very good economic relations. In our deliberations, we agreed there are many sectors in which we can expand uh, economic and trade relations. Uh, we have uh, had a decline uh, in the COVID era. We'd like to get back to the pre-COVID levels and do uh, even more. So uh, this is an area of great importance. But just to stress um, the concerns on the neo-colonial uh, attitudes, uh, you would know uh, that the world, particularly in the financial and economic domain, is greatly influenced by rules developed in Bretton Woods uh, institutions. Uh, these institutions do not always uh, take account of the developmental needs of the poorest and most vulnerable uh, countries. This is why we are having discussions as BRICS as to what we can do to really introduce a greater focus on those that need support in order to develop and where we would have fairer trade and financial rules in the economic domain because at the moment the rules and the institutions really work against the poorest and most marginalized. And so this is a task uh, that we as uh, the BRICS countries need to look at uh, with far greater concentration and to really look at what form of reform or radical change we would want to see in the IMF, the World Bank, and other international uh, development finance institutions which do not as yet sufficiently focus on the development aspect. Uh, thanks very much. Thank you, Excellencies. Uh, Peter Fabricius. Matt, can you hear me? Um, Peter Fabricius, Daily Matt. My first question is to Minister Lavrov, if I may. The, the Russian military is focusing a huge amount of its uh, attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure targets in Ukraine, firing hundreds of missiles and drones over the last few months, which have mainly destroyed electricity infrastructure such as substations. This has cut off electricity to much of the population, plunging more than half the country into darkness and cold in the middle of winter. Is your aim to destroy the morale? the will to fight to the Ukrainian people so that they surrender. And if I may, to Minister Pandor, on February 24 last year, almost 11 months ago, the, the day Russia invaded Ukraine, your department issued a statement calling on Russia to, quote, withdraw its military from Ukraine immediately, in line with the UN Charter, which enjoins all member states to settle their international disputes by peaceful means in such a manner that international peace and security and justice are not endangered. South Africa emphasizes respect for the sovereignty and territorial integrity of states, you said. Did you repeat that call in your meeting with Mr. Lavrov today? And if so, what was his response? And if not, why not? And uh, if, not, if not, what is your essential message to him about how to end this war, if not the withdrawal of Russia from Ukraine? Thank you. You would be a good prosecutor, I'm sure of that. We don't hit 
or attack the civilian infrastructure. There is a great amount of evidence testifying to that. All of the damage to the civilian infrastructure is connected to the criminal actions by the Kiev regime that has been deploying for months heavy weapons and air defense systems in residential areas. And uh, a former advisor of the administration of the Ukrainian president, I believe the surname is Aristovich, when what you saw in Dnepropetrovsk happened, said that it was work conducted by the Ukrainian air defense system that had hit a Russian missile that was flying over the territory. Those uh, countries who want to respect the international humanitarian law don't do that. When we are accused of using force on purpose against the civilian infrastructure, there are just uh, some separate comments like that. Um, when we ask this question, I would like to say that I don't remember Daily Miro or another mass media close to you be preoccupied with what has been happening in Donbass since 2014 after the coup d'etat in Ukraine. Maybe in your archives you have your coverage of the catastrophe in Odessa when militants not hiding from everyone posing in front of uh, cameras burned almost 50 people alive and those who jumped off windows in order to save themselves were shot at. Uh, I don't remember this situation provoking any concerns in Western mass media and investment politics in general. I don't recall West being concerned about regular, almost everyday shelling of Donbass for having refused to accept the and then the Minsk agreements were signed, and they obliged Ukraine to directly harmonize with Donbass its special status and its right to use the Russian language, its right to have, to have its local pol uh, police, and the right to be consulted while appointing prosecutors and judges. Those are just uh, a couple of measures, and uh, they were adopted uh, consensusly by the UN Security Council. And those who signed the agreements, except for President Putin, Alain, Merkel, and Poroshenko, openly 
and even proudly admitted that they didn't care about the Minsk agreements and they, they had signed them only in order to gain time to bump Ukraine with weapons. In order to do what? I think you will be able to figure it out by yourself. In order to make Ukraine pose a threat to the Russian Federation, I'd like to remind you that it's a threat just near our borders. It's not the same situation as it was with the U.S. when they thought that Yugoslavia or Libya threatened them and they conducted aggressive actions. Destroying countries entirely. As for us, we've been warning for years about the need to implement the Minsk agreements. Could you imagine banning the English language in Ireland? What would Great Britain do? By the way, it's the only country who claims itself great. Oh, and I think that uh, Libya also used to do that. Oh, what would France do if it was prohibited in Belgium to use uh, the French language? Or what would Sweden do if in Finland uh, the Swedish language was prohibited? And there can be numerous examples, but in Ukraine it happens as if it was normal. Neither Poroshenko, who used to be the president, or Zelensky, who is the president now, and who were elected under the motives of uh, gaining peace, just after the election turned into a Russophobic president. They passed laws uh, prohibiting mass media and education in Russia, including Ukrainian mass media that broadcasts in Russia. Those laws, in reality, prohibit the use of the Russian language even in everyday life, not to mention the prohibition of Russian classic books, any cultural context uh, related to the Russian language. Uh, Western countries support all that, just as they support uh, regular neo-Nazi marches with swastikas, with the uh, divisions, uh, symbols that were recognized as criminal ones by the Nuremberg Tribunal. They support all that. When we are commenting on what is happening in Ukraine, we need to understand that it's now almost not a hybrid war, but real one, that the Western countries have been preparing for ages in order to abolish everything related to Russia in Ukraine, everything that existed in Ukraine for centuries. And Zelensky, who is making statements in divorce and Amis awards, uh, some Slavic events, uh, has said publicly uh, in September or October, before we began the special operation, when he was asked about the attitude towards people living in Donbass, he said that there were people and there were species, and also the main Democrat of Europe, Zelensky, said that if any citizen of Ukraine felt associated with the Russian culture and felt a part of Russian world, may leave the country for the sake of their future and the future of their grandchildren.
Ну, я уже упоминал франко-говорящим жителям Бельгии the French-speaking population of Belgium and the English-speaking population of Ireland or in Scotland, I can also mention Scotland, if such a nationalist situation occurred there, direction would be different. But no one's speaking about that. You call what we've done an intervention, but you ignore the fact that we've been speaking for eight years calling for the his regime to put into practice what was agreed uh, consensusly at the Anti-Security Council. No one did anything. And when we submitted a proposal to strengthen the security guarantees in Europe, we just were not listened to. It happened in autumn last year. Just like before, they didn't listen to our proposal at, uh, in 2018 when we suggested to sign uh, a treaty on European security. Aren't you sleeping already? Did something happen? No, it's okay. <laughs> Вот, поэтому, поэтому вырвать можно любой эпизод из любой So истории. I can mention any episode, any situation, you can take it of the context, you can build your career on that, you can work for the benefits of your own government, but we are trying to be honest and to honestly um, describe the real events and uh, all the honest researchers understand why what happened in Ukraine happened. I think it was very appropriate early into uh, this conflict to make the statement that we made at Durko, because had we been able to persuade at that early stage, we would not be where we are now. But to repeat that statement to Minister Lavrov today would make me appear quite simplistic and infantile, given the massive transfer of arms that has occurred given the level of conflict that there is and all the developments that have occurred in almost a year, a month from now. So, uh, no, I did not repeat that particular statement to Minister Lavrov because I don't wish to appear as though I don't know what has occurred in the world. The last question, Russia Today, please. Hello, Donald Quarter, Russia Today. Um, I is for both foreign ministers here. Um, recently, the U.S. Treasury Secretary said that uh, Russia is trying to weaponize food and that Putin's actions are actually causing a drag on the African economy in general. So I'd like to uh, hear the response that both of you have for that. But um, I'd also like to ask a, a couple other questions to, specifically to Minister Sergei Lavrov. Uh, I wanted to understand these naval, joint naval drills that were mentioned earlier. Do you see this as uh, sort of foreshadowing of further uh, military cooperation between BRICS countries? And there's also another question I'm going to ask on behalf of Sputnik. Uh, it has to do with the fact that the United States has been um, pressuring African countries that even dare to potentially have some sort of good relationship with Russia. Um, do you think it's okay for that to be done? And also, what can Russia do to help uh, African countries that are trying to combat that sort of pressure from the United States? 
You've mentioned so many things. As for the statement by Madam Yellen, it's so difficult for me to comment on them because we have repeatedly presented facts uh, in the UN, at different press conferences in Moscow and abroad, and uh, these facts prove convincingly, and they are underpinned by the statistics of the World Food Program and the uh, UN Food and Agricultural Organization FAO. The facts testify and show that uh, the problems on the global food market started before the special military operation. Everyone knows that when there was the, an outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemics, our Western colleagues in Europe and uh, in the USA printed out uh, trillions of millions of dollars and started to buy food everywhere in the world, um, being afraid that the pandemic would create a food crisis. And uh, this crisis really was there, but because of their uncontrolled actions. And there was another factor, a politicized uh, and uncontrolled transfer to the so-called green economy. Our Western partners refused uh, from their long-term uh, gas supply contracts in particular. By the way, now trying to replace uh, the Russian gas, Europe uh, talked uh, in particular to Qatar, to the U.S., who agreed to sell their expensive uh, liquefied natural gas in replacement of the cheaper Russian gas. And uh, they have mentioned they've talked to Qatar. They propose long-term contracts the same contracts that they wanted to refuse from and uh, there are a lot of factors that have contributed to the current situation. I am convinced that Madam Yalom is a great professional. She's well aware of everything. And uh, everything is turned into a weapon. Gas, oil, green, and maybe it's even sport, is being turned into a weapon, and uh, if we win over Western countries, then we are accused of turning everything into a weapon. So once again, I've conveyed to my colleagues a renewed and updated text that explicitly describes the situation on the world food markets. By the way, as soon as uh, Mr. Guterres the UN Secretary General proposed his Ukraine initiative. We agreed immediately as we opened uh, safe corridors from Ukrainian ports through the Black Sea uh, using uh, Bosphor and Dardanelles Straits. 
at the beginning, Ukraine refused to let uh, its ships pass through mines in the sea. And, but then we were able to conclude two agreements, one on lifting all the obstacles for Russian fertilizers and grains, and another one on uh, exporting grain from Ukraine. The Ukrainian deal is being implemented more or less. Uh, most of the grain goes to the European Union, and uh, additionally, almost the same amount goes to developed countries. As for the poorest countries, they get just a tiny bit, though allegedly Guterres promoted his initiative for that. As for the Russian grains, no UN efforts contributed to making the U.S. and the EU the obstacles on our way. Both in Brussels and Washington keep claiming that no sanctions on food and fertilizers have been imposed. Of course, there is no such word as a food and uh, such words as fertilizer, but uh, it's, uh, they also say that uh, Russian ships cannot call at uh, other ports, and foreign ports cannot call. Uh, foreign ships cannot call at Russian ports. And there is um, a prohibition imposed on our main agricultural bank uh, to use the SWIFT system. There are loading problems, uh, problems with insurance, and Mr. Guterres has spoken about this problems in particular in public, but nothing has changed so far. And Western countries continue to claim that uh, food and uh, fertilizers are not under sanctions. It's uh, similar to the motto according to which uh, the Russians are to be blamed for everything because they turn everything into a weapon. Uh, but uh, this is just a motto. As for all concrete issues that Guterres uh, says he wants to solve, I just set aside. I just ignored. Even the fertilizers that uh, were proposed for free and that are in European ports, there are about uh, 200,000 tons. After they had been arrested, were proposed to other countries because we don't want uh, these uh, fertilizers to be wasted. Uh, they are losing its quality. We want them to be sent to the poorest countries. But uh, Mr. Putin uh, drew the attention of the world community to this initiative uh, six months ago. But since then, only 20,000 tons have been sent from the Netherlands to Malawi. Uh, at least three months ago, such an agreement was achieved, and uh, the fertilizers uh, have been sent recently. As for all the other ports, especially the Latvian ones, there is no progress with regard to this, I say, once again, free fertilizers. As for naval trails and uh, the fact that it reflects uh, 
the intention to develop military cooperation. We developed military cooperation with China, with uh, South Africa. Uh, minister, the Minister of Defense of South Africa visited an event in Russia uh, in August, uh, including uh, the technical, military technical forum, AMI 2022. And uh, the practice of trilateral drills is not something new. We had a similar drills with the participation of India and China. Their goals are, first of all, anti-terrorist ones. And I would like to reiterate that we are perplexed by the way our Western colleagues provoke uh, a lot of noise uh, around uh, such ordinary things uh, in the life of uh, sea powers, especially in a situation when Western countries conduct such drills much more often than we do. And the pressure put by the U.S. on African countries and also on Asian, Latin American ones is constant. And Westerners say constantly in public that those who cooperate with Russia will regret about that. They threaten major states who are great powers, great civilizations that have existed for thousands of years, and they ignore the fact that these civilizations have national pride. Maybe not all Western uh, countries have this feeling, they not all of them understand this feeling, but it doesn't mean that uh, they don't have the obligation to study history and to behave well in uh, on the diplomatic arena. I've uh, reiterated on multiple occasions that by threatening and exercising pressure, the Brits and the United States uh, cross all the red lines because they also uh, say that some political activists have accounts in Western countries and that they say that uh, their children study in other Western countries as well. So that is their attitude to democracy. Mr. Burrell has already said that Europe is a blooming garden and the rest of the world uh, is just jungles that they need to escape from, but uh, at the same time, this territory is supposed to be monitored. So such assessments and such mentality is manifested on a regular basis uh, when Western speakers make statements. Uh, they keep stating they are the uh, main reference point for democracy, and Zelensky does the same. But when we are talking about democracy to them, we understand that the only thing they are interested in is that in the countries they want to be present there are orders under their control and under their slogans. When we propose to our Western colleagues to talk about democracy international relations, they don't want to 
did discuss that the uh, the prohibits even uh, mentioning that. So there is international legislation set forth in the UN Charter, but they have also their own separate norms. As for the attitude towards the Ukrainian crisis, um, there are British, uh, European, and American envoys who run over the whole world, threatening all the countries and asking them to join anti-Russian sanctions. But if you are a good diplomat, if you respect uh, the sovereignty of other countries, uh, you know that Russia has uh, explained why it's silly what it is uh, and what uh, has refused to comment on our president's explications of what is going on. They just uh, take the 24th of February out of the context and they ignore everything else. This situation had been developing for years with the direct assistance of Western countries, but no one recalls that the history has been just cancelled and uh, the tragedies of Donetsk and Luhansk development um, in Donbass uh, still are still underway, and Western countries understand that this areas are attacked with Western weapons on purpose. It wasn't that someone shot at a missile and it fell accidentally um, at a civilian facility. No, they do it on purpose. They choose its facilities themselves. We have been explaining why we are doing what we are doing after eight years of uh, fruitless hopes that the Minsk agreements uh, will be implemented. We had to do what we do. If you respect other countries, and why don't you let them adopt their own stance? Why do you demand that they join your sanctions? So that's why the notion of democracy is very specific in uh, the Western countries, and uh, the West doesn't want any democracy in international affairs. They have only jungles and a blooming garden. That's all. Uh, I think it would be really good if uh, our friends in the media who have very powerful investigating ability could just track where the grain is going. It's very interesting to have the facts behind that. I know there's a significant blockage of news and there's a lot of distortion uh, that we are seeing in world news, but it would be good to just track one thing and to have a report on it that gives us a sense of where is this grain actually getting to? And is Sub-Saharan Africa receiving uh, access uh, to uh, wheat? On the uh, military exercises, I wish to uh, preface my comments by saying I reiterate the view of South Africa that multilateralism and dialogues are key to unlocking international peace. I reiterate that view because that is the South African position. We have continued and will continue to urge 
that there should be a diplomatic solution and process to this current conflict because we regard war as terrible, we regard war as a negative for development and for world security. So we will continue to call for dialogue and we will reiterate our view that the concerns of both nations must be addressed in that process of diplomacy. So I think I, I need to say that because these are the categorical and clear statements that the government of South Africa has reiterated time and again. On the exercises, which are called Exercise Morsi II, between Russia, China, and South Africa, these are part of a program of military exercises that the South African Defense Force has as part of agreements with many countries worldwide. No one asked us questions about exercise shared accord with the United States of America a short time ago. Nobody asked us about why we have military exercises called Exercise Oxide with France just last year in November. These are all part of exercises we undertake to hone the skills of our military and to be able to respond to a range of situations, including disaster management, which our military often plays a role in addressing. So I, I just think it's important that we regard all countries as sovereign nations and not stop doing so when it suits us. And then when it's something else, then we say, yeah, no, you must relate to us. But when it's someone else, say, no, 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 no. We don't allow that kind of division to be sought from us as South Africans. We believe we should have the right to decide who we relate to and on what basis. This is our foreign policy position, and uh, we will hold on to it. Thank, Thank you very much, much. Excellencies. That brings Thank us you. to the conclusion. There's just a request, uh, Excellencies, for another handshake behind the flags, because uh, the earlier one uh, didn't have a nice background. So we want this one. Thank you very much. Photographers, you lined up and ready? You still want to shake my hand. <laughs> Yes. yes, 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 Minister. Where, where? Photographer? In front. Okay, they want in front. <laughs> right, we good? Thank you very much, Excellencies. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the briefing uh, in its entirety uh, by South African Foreign Minister Dr. Naledi Pandora and her Russian Federation counterpart, uh, Sergei Lavrov, that took place uh, several days ago in the Republic of South Africa. They discussed uh, the Russian special military operation <clears throat> in Ukraine uh, from uh, the Russian and South African perspectives. 
Uh, they also uh, touched on uh, the global food crisis and the role of Western sanctions against the Russian Federation in, of course, uh, prompting uh, that crisis. They also discussed the joint uh, military uh, naval operations that will be taking place between the Russian Federation, the People's Republic of China, and the Republic of South Africa. And the whole concept uh, of neocolonialism was also a major aspect uh, of these briefings. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, uh, January 29th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, We'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of our program. And, of course, uh, we are going to uh, take a break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. Legendary Betty Wright uh, with the bracken title, Paralyzed 
And uh, final segment is going to uh, deal uh, with a briefing that was held uh, several days ago uh, by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, that are based uh, in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, at the African Union Secretariat. And, uh, of course, we present these uh, briefings on a regular basis to uh, discuss and analyze and review the public health status of the 1.4 billion Africans uh, who live uh, within uh, the African Union member states, the 55 member states of the continental body. Let's listen uh, to this briefing that occurred just several days ago in Ethiopia. We look at 2023 only. Since the beginning of the year, we have documented 19,892 cases and 583 new deaths um, across eight of our Africa Union member states. This gives us a case fatality rate of about 3%. And when we look at the same period um, of in 2022, the same week in 2022, we see that there is a seven-fold increase in the number of new cases. And this is a big concern considering that um, we are almost getting into the um, rainy season and this can complicate uh, response and control uh, of cholera. So far, from the beginning of this particular cholera outbreak in March of 2022, 13 countries have been affected. And unfortunately, uh, of those 13, um, we have spillover into 2023 uh, in Burundi, in DRC, in Kenya, in Malawi, and Mozambique. In fact, when we look closely at the numbers, we see that uh, for 2023, the vast majority of the numbers are coming from Malawi, and there is also evidence that uh, uh, there could be there could be uh, increased risk of spread to the neighboring countries, particularly Mozambique, um, uh, which has uh, seen a few cases in its facility. When we look specifically at Malawi uh, for cholera, we see that. Um, the case fatality rate for 2023 is 3.4%. We also see that um, the outbreak has affected most of the districts in Malawi. Um, and um, these resurgence of cases, even in uh, districts that um, uh, cholera was being controlled, is a very big concern uh, for us and the government. And we are working very closely to see how we can be able to reverse uh, that particular uh, trend. You will recall the last week I say that um, we will be sending a team uh, to um, Malawi. The team is on ground, um, have done the assessment, and now are working on a plan uh, how to handle uh, the hotspots and uh, to contain a spread from one area uh, to another. To that end, the government of Malawi has taken some steps. Um, schools were closed. Uh, Indeed, schools were not reopened during this new year, um, and uh, the Blantyre City Council has also issued a temporary closure of uh, the market and the bus depot uh, to control uh, the spread uh, of cholera. So um, uh, a lot of uh, vaccination com uh, campaigns are continuing, engagement with the public so they understand uh, uh, cholera, uh, ensuring um, uh, safe disposal of waste providing safe water, uh, all these are continuing um, in collaboration with the government of Malawi 
and other partners uh, on the ground. Cholera is um, preventable, and uh, cholera is also treatable. We need to know how to deal with it, and uh, we are working very closely with the neighbors of Malawi uh, to ensure that we don't get cross-border spillage of this particular uh, outbreak. Thank you very much, and that is um, the public health events of concern, and I'll hand it over to uh, Dr. Mohammed to speak to us about uh, the neglected tropical diseases. Thank you. Uh, uh, thank you, Director. Thank you for uh, uh, the invite. So um, Monday 30th is the fourth World MTG Days, and the theme for this year is Act Now, Act Together, Invest in Neglected Tropical uh, Diseases. Um, Neglected tropical diseases are a set of 20 diseases or groups of diseases that occur predominantly in tropical and subtropical areas. They include lymphatic filariasis, that we commonly call elephantiasis, uh, onchocerciasis or river blindness, schistosomiasis or bilharzia, as well as human African trypanosomiasis that we sometimes refer to as sleeping sickness. If you agree with me, these are uh, um, uh, infectious diseases and other form of disease that have been with us for many, many years. Some of us uh, can remember uh, uh, when we were growing up, people with uh, these uh, uh, illnesses, uh, uh, infections, and up to today, uh, the continent is still uh, gabbling with it. So NTDs are said to be neglected because they do not feature highly on the global security uh, uh, agenda, although they are a key component of the Africa Health Security Agenda because uh, Africa has uh, a high burden of uh, uh, some of these uh, uh, diseases. On Monday 30th, we have a two-hour webinar with presentation from uh, the African Union, Africa CDC, and technical presentations from member states and uh, partners. This webinar is part of our advocacy effort to bring more visibility to this serious public health issue and mobilize a political will to support member states to reach the global targets by 2030. We will also showcase some of the success stories from the continent because we need to celebrate our successes as much as we are identifying the gaps and addressing them. The flyer for this event has been shared on the Africa CDC social media including the link for registration. Please join us to support the fight against NTDs. Thank you. Back to you, uh, Chair. Thank you very much. Uh, let me say thank you to Dr. Ahmed Ogwell, who gave us some detail on the five uh, uh, public health issues uh, that the continent is dealing with, as well as uh, Dr. Mohammed Abdulaziz, who spoke to us on the neglected tropical diseases and inviting you, uh, members of the media, to join that very important uh, conference. Let's now move on to the question and answer section. And as stated at the beginning, um, our WhatsApp number is the plus 251-9455-02310. You can also come through live to us, and I see that we have one hand that is up. Let me just try to identify who that is. And uh, that is Paul Adepoju. Paul, good morning. It's, ha- it's nice to see you in the new year. Please go ahead with your question. Yes, thank you very much, and uh, happy new year to you too. So my first question has to do with um, to Dr. Ahmed. Um, uh, 
few days ago, uh, we heard about um, the disappointing results of uh, probably one of the world's most promising vaccine candidates for HIV. So I'd like to know uh, your comments on this and um, how you think um, Africa can still continue to keep on the target despite the uh, pessimism around the emergence of a vaccine for the disease. Then I'm also curious about what is happening regarding long COVID on the continent. Um, there is advanced body of knowledge elsewhere around long COVID, but we seem not to be uh, getting as much information from the country, uh, from the continent compared to elsewhere. Well, my third question has to do with uh, this emergence of um, diphtheria and uh, cholera, which are uh, largely vaccine preventable. Uh, do we know why this is happening? As an offshoot of the uh, disruption of vaccination during the COVID pandemic, and um, how sure are we that other vaccine preventable diseases are also not reemerging as a result of um, disruption to the vaccine program across Africa? And what can we do to address this quickly? Thank you very much. Um, thank you, Paul, and uh, um, I will respond to your first question on uh, HIV and uh, the one on diphtheria. For long COVID, I will ask Mohammed uh, to comment about that. So um, the process of coming up with a human vaccine is always uh, quite complex, and the vast majority of uh, uh, the candidate uh, vaccines do not make it to the end. Uh, this is the reality of um, human vaccine uh, development. Um, the disappointing results uh, are not the end of seeking a vaccine uh, against HIV. Indeed, it is um, an opportunity for us to relook at how we have been designing our vaccines candidates um, so that we can be able to get even closer uh, to uh, a vaccine uh, candidate that will be successful. Uh, it is a setback, but it does not stop. Uh, and our uh, scientists and researchers continue uh, looking um, uh, into uh, which other uh, molecules and uh, uh, platforms will be able to give us um, a vaccine uh, against HIV. Disappointing. But it galvanizes us to be able to do more uh, uh, in this regard. Um, on diphtheria and cholera, indeed even measles uh, right now, um, there is no doubt that the pandemic, uh, the pandemic's effects are now being felt beyond uh, COVID-19 uh, itself. And um, the reemergence of some of uh, these vaccines' uh, preventable diseases is a testimony to three things. One is the disruption in services um, during the pandemic. Uh, and that um, made it uh, impossible to continue uh, providing vaccines, to continue providing the public with information, uh, to continue access uh, to services uh, uh, across the continent. So this disruption uh, that has been made by um, uh, the pandemic uh, season has been very costly, as we are seeing now with uh, the reemergence of these diseases. Secondly, 
um, these diseases are emerging because of climate change. Uh, the situation that, um, uh, that we have uh, on the continent are changing. Uh, we are seeing a lot more um, uh, events uh, like um, uh, droughts and uh, uh, flooding, uh, storms, and, uh, uh, you know, we are um, feeling that effect now, um, and it, it will get worse if we don't do something uh, about it. So climate change has to be tackled directly so that it can reduce the risks uh, that we are seeing uh, currently. Uh, finally, is um, <clears throat> the other reason why we are seeing the reemergence of these diseases is because um, we have not continued to engage with the public regarding vaccination um, for diseases uh, that are vaccines amenable. Uh, it's been left to routine without um, that extra information going out to the public that we need to do it. Um, and this has been costly, uh, and therefore, as Africa CDC, we see a very keen interest that we continue to inform the public about all types of vaccines amenable diseases so that we don't get gaps in uh, um, vaccination uh, coverage amongst the population. But on long COVID, I invite Dr. Mohammed uh, to uh, respond to that. Mohammed? Uh, thank you, sir. Thank you, Dr. Ahmed. The, the uh, long COVID defined as uh, uh, persistence of symptoms uh, two months after post-diagnosis is um, is of uh, concern the world over, and uh, uh, of course even in in Africa. Um, uh, but in Africa, because of um, the challenge, the many competing demands. And the, our health-seeking be, uh, behavior, which may differ from uh, uh, other parts of the world, we it, 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 characterizing it uh, may not be as simple as the way uh, uh, it's done uh, in other uh, uh, settings. However, um, uh, uh, some studies have been done, not enough uh, on in Africa, on how this long COVID uh, presents, uh, and uh, uh, it, it, it seems uh, that 10% of uh, uh, people of uh, people who have COVID uh, have persistence of two or more symptoms uh, uh, two months after uh, 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 post diagnosis, which is not supposed to be so. And in the Africa data sets that we've reviewed, uh, the most common uh, uh, dyspnea. That's the difficulty in breathing and fatigue, generalized fatigue, uh, two months uh, post the, uh, the, 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 the diagnosis. We intend to, uh, right now we're we are partnering with uh, uh, um, uh, uh, some of our partners um, um, uh, across the, uh, the divide to, to really do a large-scale study. Uh, we're in the process of define, uh, uh, designing the methodology and how the uh, uh, data will be captured. Uh, and uh, once that is completed, uh, um, um, we will be able to better characterize the burden on the African uh, 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 continent. But be rest assured that um, 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 uh, Africa CDC will, uh, as much as possible, uh, uh, look at, uh, into the, uh, the, these complications that may continue to afflict those who have suffered um, uh, uh, COVID-19 and uh, have, uh, have, have failed to make full recovery uh, two months post-diagnosis. Uh, uh, Thank you. I'm back to you. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, we say hello to Sarah Jervin, who is with uh, DevEx. 
And Sarah has come through on our WhatsApp group and she says, has the unknown flu in China only affected African citizens? Are there Chinese citizens that have been infected as well? Had the African citizens recently arrived in China or had they been there for some time? And finally, she asks, which African nations are the 10 cases from? Dr. Ogwell, over to you. Thanks, Sarah. Um, the information we have is that um, uh, the 10 reported cases are of African uh, uh, citizens uh, with a history of recent travel uh, to their country, and the country is Nigeria. Um, there is no report so far of um, uh, uh, Chinese um, uh, cases, but we can continue to work with China CDC for us to be able to give us the most updated uh, information. But so far, uh, no reports of um, uh, local Chinese, only those who had recently traveled uh, from Nigeria. But they are also continuing with the investigation to read uh, the most updated reports uh, on that particular uh, unknown illness outbreak in Guangzhou. All right. Uh, thank you very much. I am not seeing any questions coming through for now. So perhaps while colleagues are sending in their questions, let me just ask you about uh, a rumor that uh, seems to be spreading on some social media uh, platforms to the effect that uh, people who have been vaccinated um, are starting to suffer some consequences. Is there any truth to that? And can you just elaborate on the actual situation? No, thanks. Thanks, Wayne. And uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, information, unverifiable, that is going around uh, 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 in discussions amongst the public. Um, the evidence that we have uh, as we speak does not point uh, to any um, uh, uh, dramatic and um, new effects of uh, the COVID-19 uh, vaccination. Uh, no evidence so far has been documented, not by us. Um, what we are reading about outside of the continent um, are um, not yet verified, and we wait to see if at all there will be any verification from elsewhere in the world. Here on the continent, we don't have any, and uh, my advice to members of the public uh, will be seek your information from the right sources, so that you remain safe. Um, every evidence that we have uh, is that uh, vaccination against COVID-19 is safe, um, and it offers you protection from serious illness, uh, and therefore we encourage you to take COVID-19 vaccine. Indeed, we encourage you to get your booster now whenever you fall eligible uh, for that. In case anything were to change, we will be the first ones to let the public know. Thank you. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, we still do not have any further questions, uh, but perhaps, uh, colleagues, if you want to ask your question, I'll just give you a minute um, to uh, formulate your question and put it through to us so that we don't have questions coming in after we have started the, doing the summaries, as we do get some time. Um, Sarah Jerving has just come back, and she's asking, I just want to double-check the city that you are referring to, 
Is it Guangzhou? That is correct, Sarah. All right, Sarah, so I think you have your answer there. All right, I think it is time for us now to go to our summaries because I think all colleagues have the necessary information that they require. So let me start with uh, Dr. Mohammed for just one minute, a summary of what you want um, journalists online today to remember from your briefing or at least your call to action uh, to them. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, we want to remind uh, uh, ourselves uh, uh, and everybody and uh, journalists to help us spread this message that neglected tropical diseases is still with us on the African continent. Uh, they are, like the name suggests, neglected, uh, not given the priority uh, like COVID-19, for instance, is given, but they are an important uh, source of um, burden of disease, including morbidity. If you've seen somebody having um, uh, elephantiasis, let me use the common uh, language, or uh, river blindness, imagine how much productivity that uh, a person will have lost over the number of years in which he's carrying this uh, uh, um, uh, um, a complication of uh, of these two neglected tropical diseases. Now we, uh, uh, Africa CDC, uh, uh, under our leadership, will be uh, 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 bringing advocacy to this neglected tropical diseases through an event on uh, January 30th, which is the day that is set aside to remind us of uh, uh, the burden of NTDs. And we invite you all to please join us. The link to the uh, uh, flyer is, uh, has already been posted by Nikkei One, and uh, please join us and so that we can discuss. We will have our member states, we will have the African Union, uh, the Africa CDC director will be there to, uh, to also add his voice to this very important aspect of uh, reducing disease burden that really causes a lot of morbidity uh, among our uh, citizens. Back to you, Chair. All right, uh, thank you. Over now to the Acting Director of the Africa CDC, Dr. Ahmed Ogwell, for your closing statements of the key points. Uh, thank you, Wayne, and uh, thank you very much, colleagues uh, who have been with us today. Um, the three things for takeaway today, um, the first is just the appreciation that Africa CDC's mandate is for prevention and control of disease. So it goes beyond health emergencies. And that is why, as Mohammed has uh, presented today, uh, when we are uh, commemorating the World uh, MTD's Day on the 30th of January, we invite you to join us and uh, to also share that Africa CDC goes beyond um, uh, health uh, emergencies. We do the whole range of uh, prevention and control uh, of health uh, of diseases here on the continent. Second is for COVID-19, get vaccinated. Get your booster. Be safer because we don't know um, how um, the virus is going to uh, behave in the coming days uh, and months. Um, let not any spike in the numbers catch you um, unawares and unvaccinated, don't let any um, new variant or a new sublineage affect you because you are not vaccinated 
get vaccinated, get boosted if you're eligible, so that you can remain safer um, uh, with that uh, protection of the vaccine. The third thing that I would like to say is um, um, outbreaks start and end at the community level. It is me and you who will see the first case or be the first case. It is me and you who can be able to inform uh, health authorities when there is um, uh, the first case, when there is a new illness. It is you and me who are going to act to ensure that that outbreak remains small and therefore does not disrupt our way of life. And therefore, I invite you that we need to act um, and now. We need to act together and we need to act so that we can safeguard Africa's health going into the future. I thank you very much for your attention today. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Ahmed. And I want to thank you, colleagues uh, from the media, colleagues from the communication sector, and any other citizens who may have been listening to this broadcast, where the African Union, through the Africa CDC, brings you updates and information and advice on the uh, public health issues around the continent. So special thanks to the Acting Director of the Africa CDC, Dr. Ahmed Ogwell, as well as the Dr. Mohamed Abdulaziz, who spoke to us about uh, the neglected tropical diseases. Thank you to colleagues behind the scenes from the African Union, which of course includes the Africa CDC, and special thanks to you, everyone who's joined us. Let us meet again next Thursday at the same time, which is at 12 noon East African time. Have a blessed week. Welcome back, and uh, that was a briefing uh, from the African Center for Disease Control and Prevention uh, based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and uh, that uh, dealt with some of the most recent uh, updated uh, information and data on the public health situation on the African continent. And uh, we want to uh, play uh, a brief segment uh, from a speech that was delivered uh, earlier today by African National Congress and Republic of South Africa President Cyril Ramaphosa. Part of his address at the African National Congress National Executive Committee, the COSLA that was held uh, earlier today. Uh, let's listen in. Uh, we'll hear a few minutes uh, of uh, this presentation. And improving the lives of our people. Some of the more notable successes include broadening access to basic and higher education, especially through initiatives such as the no-fee schools 
and financial aid to higher education students, whose numbers have been growing by leaps and bounds over the years. We have widened access to health care and increased access to the social wage in the form of social grants, free basic electricity, water, housing, and community infrastructure and services. There is a report that says South Africa stands at the top of the welfare that is given to its citizens more than many other countries. Latest available statistics reflect that there are nearly 18 million beneficiaries of state grants such as old age pensions, child support and disability grants. In addition, around 7.4 million people receive the 350 social grant of distress and the time to fluctuate right up to 11 million. In total, nearly 25 million people in our country receive some form of support from the government. This is indicative of both the extent of hardship experienced by the people and the efforts this government is making to address such hardships. Our country is going through one of the most challenging periods since the advent of democracy. Unemployment remains unacceptably high and many people have lost hope on finding employment. The youth are especially more negatively affected with nearly a third of young people between ages 15 and 24 who are not in employment, who are not in education and who are not in training. The electricity crisis continues to undermine economic growth as well as investment. Low shedding damages businesses continues to disrupt the livelihoods of our people in various households. It compromises the provision of social services and also affects safety and well-being of our people, especially the women and young girls. Load shedding also has a negative impact on food production, thus threatening food security in our country. Lawlessness, criminality, illegal mining, construction site extortion, table theft and violence mean that many people and especially women and children continue to live in fear. Due to the rising costs of living, many households are finding it difficult to meet their most basic needs such as food, transport and energy. Many municipalities are failing to perform their basic functions such as the delivery of clean water, regular waste collection and road maintenance. 
Several communities are severely affected by climate change in the form of extreme weather conditions such as drought, fire, floods that destroy their homes, schools, roads and bridges. Racism and other forms of discrimination continue to become more prevalent, undermining the values of our constitutional democracy and fueling anger and frustration amongst our people. The 55th Conference, recognizing the scope and depth of these various challenges facing our people, has firmly resolved that urgent and decisive action must be taken to place our country back on a developmental path that puts the interests of the people first. The Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa speaking earlier today uh, at an African National Congress uh, meeting in the Republic of South Africa. And that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast for today, uh, Sunday, January the 29th, uh, 2023. And uh, we've been broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, to our program. If you'd like to have access uh, to uh, this edition of the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll be closing out with the music of uh, Wes Montgomery uh, from a live broadcast over the BBC from March 25th of 1965. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. Jazz musicians have only to make a couple of records or sit in on a few jam sessions to be hailed as new discoveries. Well, with our star guest on Jazz 625 tonight, exactly the opposite happened. For many years, he was virtually unknown to the wide jazz public. And then, five years ago, came not only recognition, but also acceptance as one of the masters of his instrument, the jazz guitar. The name is Wes Montgomery. Yeah. With him, making up the members of his quartet are on piano, someone who uh, was quite recently in Miles Davis's band, and before that with Lionel Hampton, Harold Mayburn. 
On bass, the young man who's made several albums with J.J. Johnson quite recently, Arthur Hopper. <laughs> and on drums, a new name in, to, to British jazz fans, someone who comes from the West Coast of America and who will be known to jazz fans in the future, I'm quite sure, Jimmy Lovelace. <laughs> so, that's the West Montgomery Quartet, and now their first number, Jerome Kern's Yesterday. <laughs> Thank you. 
That was a West Montgomery original called Jingles. Wes is a, is a self-taught musician, but if you think that a self-taught musician is in any way a faulty or incomplete musician, take the opportunity of looking in close-up at the fantastic thumb technique which he's evolved. This is, uh, so far as I know, a, a unique technique, and it's one which makes even classically trained guitarists boggle, and they don't boggle too easily. Uh, over to the quartet now for, uh, for uh, a classic of modern jazz, Thelonious Monk's Round Midnight. Thank mm-hmm. you. 